0: Hello, welcome to The Armin Show, where we talk about everything science, human behavior, creativity, and more. Thanks for joining and make sure to subscribe.
1: On this episode here, we have the author of The Rise and Fall of the East. How exams, autocracy, stability, and technology brought China success and why they might lead to its decline. My guest today is Professor Yasheng Huang, who is an American professor in international management at the MIT Sloan School of Management, where he founded and heads the China Lab and India Lab. His research areas include human capital formation in China and India. Professor Huang, welcome to the show.
0: Yeah, thank you, Armin. Very happy to be here.
1: I'm glad to have you on. Your book is very current in that the rise and fall or the details of China are spoken about on a regular basis publicly in relation to the United States and separately from that. Before we get into the book, how did you get to your path of where you are at right now at MIT?
0: Ah, okay. So I have always been interested in doing research, uh, thinking about China, and China has had very complex history, complex economy, complex political system, and there are many, many ways of uh, thinking about how that system works and doesn't work. So I'm just one of many, many scholars and observers of China who are fascinated by the country. I was born there, so I have the natural kind of desire to understand my own country. Um, and it is also a country that um, that is momentous on the global stage. So it is objectively important to get things right. And I have to say on that score, I have been not terribly happy with a lot of pronouncements people have made about the country, uh, both in terms of accuracy and also in terms of the depth with which people approach the question, so I have wanted to, you know, do my own best to go more deeply in history, Uh, so the book is divided between history and today, uh, as well as linking in a very specific way how history has shaped China today.
1: When you think of the nation of China, what are some of the most automatic features that come to mind? that represents China as compared with other nations of the planet? What are the most specific things that come to mind immediately?
0: Yeah, so immediately, I think uh, for people like us who are sort of looking at Chinese economy, Chinese politics, the the things that are immediately interesting are uh, just uh, there's kind of intrinsic capability resident in that country That enables the country to grow the economy, to launch manufacturing, to launch infrastructure projects uh, on a very massive scale very, very quickly. So that's one feature that is striking, right? So if we think about China in comparison with many other countries, you know, it's not that other countries can't get things done but it seems that China can get things done more quickly the other is definitely the autocracy the autocratic feature the autocratic nature of the country uh, that is quite striking that it has been persistently autocratic you know despite economic growth and despite economic disasters right so it is able to sail through both economic success and economic failures. The third feature I would argue that uh, the totality of the history of the country is that it has some incredible successes and it has some incredible failures. Right. So the extremity is on the both sides of the equation rather than just on one side. Uh, some countries have Mixture of successes and failures, what China has is if it is successful, it is extremely successful. If it is failing, it is extremely failing right so that's a kind of the puzzle that we are wrestling with. you know I'm not saying I got everything f- uh, figured out, but but I think uh, we all make our best effort to try
1: does the autocracy make it somewhat of a more extreme in cases like you're describing versus maybe the opposite would average out more, kind of like one of your chapter titles, reversion to the autocratic mean. Uh, Is there something to that where certain governments average out and other ones have key moments of a lot of activity or a lot, great success and then a great failure? Which one is better? A great success and then a great failure or kind of an
0: average progression? Well, in my own view, the average progression is better. Kind of, you grow, maybe not as fast, but you don't fail as as fantastically as you would. Right? So, in in the Chinese case, you know, the country has greatly forward uh, cultural evolution. This is on the failure side of the equation. And it has also had this tremendous success with globalization, with economic growth in the last uh, 40 years. I don't think for a country of that size, you know, 1.3 billion people, to go from one extreme to the other extreme uh, is a good thing. You know, so in terms of normative, perspective, Um, I prefer a system that is is a little bit slower, um, but it is more consistent and more predictable. And I would argue this is the price of the Chinese autocracy that, yes, you get the upside of the growth, but boy, when you pay the downside, the downside is really bad. Right. So I would like to see a little bit more balanced approach, a more democratic system, a more distributed system where decision makings are not necessarily that fast, but the lack of the speed slows down good decisions, but also bad decisions, right? So I, in my own view, I prefer that system. That's my personal preference.
1: Right. If there's the example of, let's say there's a building project and suddenly 50,000 people are brought together very rapidly to build it in China, that is showcased as a success. What might be the opposite end of that? What's the not positive end that is maybe not showcased as much that balances that out?
0: Well, so that project itself is not necessarily indicator of the success. It can be a project that does nothing to improve people's welfare, um, it can be a bridge uh, going nowhere, and you can have 50,000 people building that project that has no economic benefits, right? And uh, uh, so it really depends on the economic value of the project that you build. In democracies, um, you know, we also make mistakes um, in a market economy, we also mis- make mistakes. Uh, but the fundamental difference is that in China, because it's an autocracy, only the government has the decision right to decide to build that one project. Right? So if it is good, then it's good. If it is bad, it's really, really bad. Right? Whereas in a, in, a, in a market economy, uh, maybe different parties don't come to the agreement and they don't proceed with the project. Or maybe they build smaller projects here and there. You know, some fail, some succeed. Um, so it, it is. It is really. Um, I, I think. I think you can make an argument that Chinese system is better when the country is trying to catch up, rather than when the ca- country is already ahead, right? Because when you catch up, basically you learn from the successes and failures of other countries ahead of you. I often tell my students, you know, uh, the student who is going to learn the most is the slowest student in the room <laughs> because everything that he or she hears is better than whatever he or she has and you learn from that. Whereas if you're a best student, you, you really don't have much to learn. So. If you're behind, you can make an argument for that fast system. Um, uh, but 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 China now is second largest GDP in the world, and um, it should it should uh, it should think about that balance a little bit differently.
1: This is a wonderful point you bring up about the slower student, or being the one in the room that's picking up the most, but is the most behind, or when you're underneath many people who have done more, but you're still in the room with them, that means that you are growing and reaching out as much as possible versus it looks good, but you're comfortable, but there's not much progression or growth. That looks good at the moment, but it's not great for down the road. So they're kind Mm -hmm. of different there. Yeah. Now, one comment on the rise. So the first part is about the rise of China. Can you describe some of the details of China's rise What has led to it? How is it going right now? What are the key elements of that rise?
0: Yeah, so I go back to history, right? So, and the book is divided between history and today. So I start with the history, the rise of China, historically speaking, as a technological power. And many people don't necessarily know that history, that China once was the most advanced economy and technological producer in the world. And my book goes into some detail explaining why they got things right. It turns out that lesson is very persistent. That lesson, we can apply the same lesson to China today. And that basic lesson is the following. It sounds simple, uh, but actually to do it is very, very tricky. That lesson is that you need both things to work for you, right, to achieve that success. One is some degree of what I call scale, right? So uniformity, homogeneity, right? For example, in terms of financial support, in terms of government support, you need some scale of that. But you also need some diversity of ideas that diversity of ideology, diversity of politics, that can create, uh, incubate creativity and uh, curiosity. Right. So you, you, you need both of these things in place. And what we show through data analysis, and this is quite unique because many people don't uh, write about this on the basis of data, and we actually have data, we constructed a large-scale database going back to 5th century BCE. Through our statistical analysis, we show that China was at its most technologically advanced level when it had both of these conditions, rather than just having one of them, or rather than having none of these two, right? So then fast forward to the uh, contemporary period, and I divide the contemporary period between the reform era, which goes from 1978 to 2018. And then since 2018, I believe China now is going back in terms of its politics, in terms of its um, uh, economic system. So. During the first forty years of uh, since 1978, China kind of figured out had had these two conditions, right? It had a strong government for sure, but it also decentralized economic decision making to the regions. It globalized the economy, and crucially for technology, it permitted. And actively created conditions for academic collaboration, right? So scientists uh, from China working with scientists from Germany, from U.S., from Japan, academic exchanges, a lot of that was happening, right? Uh, Chinese students coming to the U.S., Chinese students going to Europe, they work with their professors, and, and then they go back to China lot of mobility of human capital between China and the West, right, in combination with strong government support for R&D and for science, right? And since 2018, uh, we have seen that the government is still strongly supporting science and technology, but it is reducing dramatically the level of globalization. So essentially one condition is missing and rather than having both of these conditions. So unlike many observers in the West, uh, I'm not optimistic about technological prospects uh, of China in the new environment when the only thing you have is the government support rather than uh, ideas and and uh, creativity coming from many countries, rather than having Chinese companies working with foreign companies. You know, I gave the example of Huawei, right? Huawei before 2018 worked with over 100 American suppliers. Huawei's success was a success of collaboration, rather than just single-minded government support, although that was important too, right? So I try to sort of make the argument that you need both. Today, China only has one. And I would argue, actually, even that one may may go away because that government support depends on strong economic growth. And as a result of deglobalization and crackdown on technology, on private sector, Chinese economy now is growing very slowly. They they don't have they no longer have the kind of resources to support large scale technological development as they did before.
1: Now, what is it about recent years that has made China more like an island in this category, where they are not as diversified, and it may be a limiting factor?
0: Yeah, so um, in 2013, I believe. Um, the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, made a famous speech about the collapse of the Soviet Union. In that speech, he said, Soviet Union collapsed because they loosened control of the country. Um, And and he has sort of, you know, stuck to that belief and then uh, increased the control, uh, political control of the Chinese Society of Chinese Economy. Ever since he became the, the leader of China in 2013, but that was a just a wrong diagnosis of what led to the decline and the collapse of Soviet Union. The collapse of Soviet Union definitely there were ethnic issues and things like that, but it was really because of 20 years of economic stagnation that they didn't have a vibrant entrepreneurial uh, sector, they didn't have private sector, they didn't have foreign direct investment, they didn't have globalization, right? And on top of slow uh, population growth, all of these factors contributed to basically very little economic growth and very little improvement of people's living standard. That was the reason the country collapsed. But Xi Jinping drew a very different conclusion. You know, He believed that it was because they didn't control and, and therefore he implemented all these controls. But the problem with those controls is that those controls led to stifling of entrepreneurship, uh, deglobalization of the Chinese economy, kind of foreign policy tensions with the United States, with Europe, right? And all of that led to slow economic growth, which was the very reason why Soviet Union collapsed in the first place, right? And so it, so this is, you know, it is a a intellectual failure, right? Essentially a failure to read the situation correctly, but it is also a failure of the system because nobody challenged that point of view in the autocracy, right? And and then in 2018 uh he abolished the two-term uh, limit on, on presidency and he's now basically president for life and that's why i define uh the reform era as ending in 2018 uh, that that was when the two-term limitation was uh two-term limit was abolished and and this is uh To me, this is very counterproductive, and it is potentially going to lead to the fall of China as an economic and technological power. You know, how exactly that happens, when exactly that will happen, we don't really know. But the evidence so far suggests if you look at uh, my book, went to the uh, print uh, uh, press in November 2022. So I don't have I didn't have the data in 2023. If you look at the economic performance in 2023, it is a very worrisome picture. Very high youth unemployment, slow GDP growth, uh, re- 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 uh, reduction of the um, export and import. And this is all perfectly predictable because when you uh, control the foreign businesses, when you crack down on the private sector, that's exactly what you get, which is poor economic performance.
1: Two things come to mind here. One of them is I always notice this trend. I was talking about it yesterday, where when things are going well, they're going well. When things start to get shaky or worse, there's a period of time where it's not really paid attention to and things still go okay as things are breaking down in the background. And then when things get really rough in some way, suddenly there's like a, we do our thing our way kind of philosophy that uh, pulls in towards an island before trouble sets in. I noticed this in countries in uh, people's relationships, uh, partnerships and corporations. And it's always like when it gets to a, uh, Uh, rough time has been building over time and then it gets to a point where it, before it gets very bad it looks good for a little bit because a lot is showcased as a nice uh, things are going okay and then it gets rough there's that pattern there have you noticed this kind of pattern in different countries or uh, is that what it looks like before the fall
0: yeah so if you look uh, sort of Across the globe, um, Latin America, Southeast Asia in the 1990s, and and also Russia, uh, they did experience um, rather dramatic fall of GDP, financial crisis, massive capital outflows from the country. So that's definitely one pattern that you just laid out, and that's a that's a very kind of um, very famous pattern, and has been repeated a number of times. But there's another pattern too, right, Uh, which is the Japan story. In the case of Japan, the economy slowed down. They lost 20 years and even more than 20 years, Uh, but they never really experienced uh, a financial crisis. Um, And Japan experienced uh, what is known as a balance sheet recession, very high debt. Companies and households trying to reduce their debt, try to uh, restrict their uh, consumption, and companies are not making investments. I believe that this is uh, a scenario more likely to happen in China, rather than kind of uh, the collapse scenario that we see in Southeast Asia in the late nineteen nineties and Latin America in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. Um, it will be um, it will be a gradual slowdown of the GDP, and um, the financial pressures will be increasing. I do believe that China has more. Uh, wiggle room to maneuver if they want to change the policy and the country you know still has substantial capability that 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 is not going anywhere uh the entrepreneurship is still quite um vibrant uh if you gave them the ro- at the right conditions but the but the issue is politics right whether or not you reverse the policies so dramatically without inflicting damage to your reputation and credibility. And this is the curse of autocracy. So essentially, you almost have to get everything right to have the credibility. Not just get you know many things right. You have to get everything right. And you have to get everything so right to have uh the policy credibility. So it is very hard for autocrats to completely reverse the policy. They may stop, you know, unprotected policies, but but I think in China today that's not enough. You can't just you can't just stop cracking down on the private sector. You really have to do more than that. You have to, you know, lay out some basic rule of law, you have to inject more stability and predictability into the, uh, into the economy. And that requires some more proactive actions, rather than simply saying, oh, I'm not going to punish you anymore, right? Because people know that, okay, you don't punish me now, you can always have the right to punish me later on.
1: That's very true. What separates China the most from other countries versus are some of the changes that China is going through right now also being shared by all the countries of the world? What are the big differentiators between China and let's say India or Europe or Africa or Brazil or the US right now?
0: Yeah, so um, so if you um, compare sort of apple to apple, Cases um, usually China is compared to uh, India, because um, the two countries are the most populous countries in the world, and they are emerging economies, and um, you know they are um, developing countries. So. China compared with India, I believe that China still has better raw economic fundamentals than India. We are talking about human capital. We are talking about, you know, many many years of manufacturing capabilities. Uh, global connections are 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 there, even though they are being damaged. They are still there. Uh, the Chinese diaspora, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, you know, they, they're they extremely capable business people. Right? Education level is very high. And the role of women, you know, Chinese women are extremely strong. Um, whereas uh, in India, um, in many ways, India still operates in a very uh, traditional mindset, right? Um, discrimination against women is still very substantial. The level of human capital is not the same as as the Chinese level of human capital. And there are still many bureaucratic restrictions. But India has been doing well, right? And I think India has been doing well. Uh, hopefully <laughs> under Modi, uh, they don't go overboard in one direction I think the reason why India has been doing well is because you can do well by avoiding big mistakes. Sometimes you don't have to get many things right. It's a little bit like amateur tennis, right? So yes, you need to hit aces and serve very, very strong. But, you know, one winning strategy is uh, to avoid making big mistakes. Um, and India as a democracy has a, an ability to avoid making gigantic mistakes um, more than China. You know, I'm not saying that it is mistake-free. It has made many, many mistakes. But we're not talking about the level of cultural evolution and the great leap forward. Yes, India has probably not made appropriate investments in building bridges and airports, but we're not talking about, you know, the kind of cultural evolution kind of mistakes, right? Or zero COVID kind of mistakes. And so by kind of, being consistent and persistent in, in kind of, sometimes we call good enough policies, uh, India has a, has a chance to, um, to 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 perform, and so I I think you know and, and now the wind is behind India's back. Um, U.S. is courting India. Uh the West is uh, viewing India as a ideological ally um you know all these features were not that important before because they view China not as an ideological threat right but because of the foreign policy mistakes that China has made uh, It has antagonized so many Western countries and to be uh, so close to Russia, right? You know, it's just from an economic perspective, that's just simply not a very rational decision, right? Russia, the size of Russian economy is the size of one big province in China, Guangdong province, you know, something like one point four trillion dollars, whereas the markets that China is antagonizing you know, has something like 55 trillion dollars. So it's just not a very good trade-off um, and from an economic perspective. So that kind of mistake, I don't think India is making. And so that's why I, I have some um, cautious optimism about, about India.
1: On India's point, has India learned a bit from China or did they just do the thing they've always been doing?
0: They 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 have been doing things that they have been doing since 1991, and for India um, they have sort of the opposite challenges as compared with China. China makes decisions too fast. India makes decisions too slow. Under Modi, one can make the an argument. That Modi is slightly moving the bureaucracy a little bit toward the fast side of the equation, away from the slow side of the equation.
1: Now switching gears a little bit, what would be the perspective that China has on the US at this time? Is the US a relevant voice in 2023 or the dominant factors, or is India the most notable country of activity right now in
0: 2023? No, no. uh, U.S. is incredibly important to China. And I think more than they should recognize uh, the reality, I believe that um, uh, U.S. is critical or has been critical to Chinese economic success Um, in terms of the marketplace, in terms of um, Providing uh, uh, initially, at least, uh, business know-how. You know, if you look at Chinese technology companies, many of them emulated the U.S. Um, business methods, business model, business approach. Um, you know, China now uh, has 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 become more innovative, um, but we're not talking about you know com- being able to completely. Like, um, move away from U.S. business model and uh, U.S. market, right? Chinese internal market is getting big, but the Western market is still a very important source of Chinese economic development. So, so U.S. is very, very critical. Um, and Deng Xiaoping famously said that if you look at the friends of the United States, they all got rich if you look at the enemies of the United States, they all got poor. And and I I believe that's absolutely true. But the Chinese leaders have to, uh, essentially have to recognize that the U.S. is good for China. The U.S. may not be good for them, right? For that political system. Um, The the, the U.S. represents democracy, rule of law, human rights. And U.S. wants China to move a little bit more toward um, democracy, right? And uh, as a, as a, as a, almost as a condition for economic exchange and economic uh, uh, development. Uh, so it's 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 hard. It's essentially, you know, the Chinese leaders have to accept their bargain. Right? Uh, if you increasingly link your economy to the United States, some of the ideas of Western uh, uh, values and Western practices are going to come in, and that, that's just unavoidable. Um, and in my own view that um, you know, I'm not arguing for a complete westernization of China. Um, but I would argue that uh, the, the Chinese people will benefit more from having more rule of law, from having more policy predictability. Um, you know, we are not saying that it should move to a constitutional democracy overnight, but at least it should move in that direction, right? Maybe slowly and gradually, because you don't also want an overnight abrupt change, because that can be incredibly disruptive. But in terms of overall direction, they should move in that direction. Sadly speaking, China since 2018 has been moving in the opposite direction. And India sort of features in this story because India is a democracy. If India can prove itself to be also capable of economic growth, that is going to poke the hole in the argument that only autocracies can deliver economic growth, right? That view, by the way, is a myth. It is just simply not true. But there are a lot of people in China who believe in that uh, in that perspective. But India, if India can get, get its act together, and I believe that the US is getting its act together um, until we have, uh, President Trump reelected, and then everything goes down the hill. Uh, you know, I, I think under Biden, the U.S. is coming back. Uh, it is um, um, reinvesting in the U.S. Uh, industry, uh, manufacturing. Uh, it is getting the government more clean. Uh, it is um, uh, restoring the credibility that U.S. lost during the Trump years. If U.S. can continue to do that, it is going to be the proof that uh, democracy can also perform and deliver.
1: You know, on the cycle of growth mentioned earlier, you have stability as the base, and then you have expansion or diversification, uh, which involves change and more risky, and having the two is very good. What is it that usually stops a nation from continuing both together do they get is it like a big like a big ego or view of themselves or is it because they start to mismanage or some people take over how's that happen
0: yeah in the in the case of china there are two scenarios that can break that performance and to some extent it is already breaking some of that performance even as we speak One is policy mistakes, right? So this is the curse of autocracy. You know, I'm not saying autocracy always make wrong policy decisions. Sometimes they get it right. But the problem is that um, you get hubris from making certain decisions right. And then you think that you are invisible you're wise in an infinite array of uh, possible combinations of, of, of the world. And then you begin to really, really make wrong decisions. We see that in China, it's just you know, in the last two years, even, um, And you know their first response to COVID. Um, was, you know, they they used their autocratic strength to basically um, isolate people, right? When you didn't have vaccine, uh, that was the only way really to isolate the transmission and stop the transmission of the virus, whereas the Western countries didn't have that power.
1: On the point of autocracy, does that cycle have to... Continue in that way, can it work on both ends for a country for a long time, or is there something that stops them from having both stability yeah. and expansion and growth?
0: Yeah. So one is that one scenario is um, kind of successes incubate conditions for failures, right? Because you overreach, uh, you have an exaggerated sense of yourself, right? Look at Hitler, right? So. <laughs> Uh, yes he um uh he took over Poland Czechoslovakia, and then he thought well why not russia right so that 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 is you know a very common phenomenon among autocracies that you overreach the other uh problem that can break the balance is that autocracies have troubles making transition from one leader to the next. Under one leader, you can have you know, stability, you can have order, right? you can have one man rule. But, you know, autocrats, like the rest of us, die, right? And how do you transition power from one leader to another that has been a perennial challenge for non uh, hereditary autocracies. So in my book, I pointed out that the Chinese Communist Party learned and, uh, and, and utilized many of the practices from imperial China, except in this one area, right? Because in the imperial China, the transition of power was actually quite uh, well legislated, right? It was the oldest son uh, of the emperor. It was quite automatic, and there was no suspense. There was no surprise, and it was a very well uh, laid out procedure and process. So the, the, the Chinese Communist Party has, you know, use many techniques from the Imperial China in many, many aspects of the governing the country, except in this area, right? Because this is a republican form of the government. And, you know, unless you are North Korea, then you you, you do that. Uh under Republican form of a government, you transition power to your own uh, son. But China I I just don't see it. So that can break the balance. Power struggles typically happen as the incumbent leader gets old and there's a need to nominate a, a successor. Right As soon as that process begins, you're going to have political instability at the very top. That happened so many times in the history of the Chinese Communist Party. And very disruptive. China actually, uh, the Chinese Communist Party has more failures than successes in terms of making sure that transitional power happens uh, smoothly. So that's an issue that's going to confront the country uh, pretty soon, and 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 that can, if 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 the rupture is severe, that can really de- derail the whole. The, 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 whole, the whole system. That is a de- debilitating shock to the system.
1: My last question for you on this day is, if someone was reading your book, The Rise and Fall of the East, what would be a takeaway message you would want them to come away with?
0: Yeah, so, so the basic takeaway message, and by the way, I'm working on, a, on another book building on this message. The basic message is that you need both a degree of diversity and a degree of uniformity to achieve success. So my current project is about countries and companies and even individuals having to balance these two conditions in the right way it is a very tricky balance and i would argue that china has mostly veered toward uniformity rather than diversity india is almost the opposite it is uh, it, it values the diversity it prices the diversity and as re- as a result, it's very difficult to get uh, difficult to get things done, right? U.S. I would argue that uh, U.S. also struggles with this issue. Yeah. So the the basic idea is that within both a uh, autocracy and democracy, you need to balance between these two forces, and you need to get them right, right? And and that's why I view uh Trump as a, such a threat to democracy because his um claim of false claim about electoral fraud fundamentally challenged the ability of the democracy to scale itself right so essentially to to arrive at a consensus about who is the right rightful leader for the country right if you don't believe the election results, you know, how can you arrive at a consensus who is the rightful leader of, of the country? So if you have more of that, then democracy in the U.S. is going to be under some severe threat. Um, in my own view, democracy requires consensus on certain issues. The beauty of democracy is that it would only require consensus on a few issues rather than on many many issues right you have to have consensus about electoral process about the legitimacy of the election about rule of law things like that you don't need consensus about you know heterosexuality or homosexuality about religion about those you you actually don't need that right um, because those uh, the consensus about elections about rule of law is going to settle these other differences among different religious groups, uh, people of different opinions, um, a variety of issues. Right. So, so the beauty of democracy is that you can have both some uniformity about the process in order to arrive at the diversity of the outcome. And Trump is a fundamental threat to that Equation. So, so this is what my current book is is uh, is about.
1: It's wonderful that from one book to another, prolific in nature. I would like to say, Professor Wang, thank you for joining on this episode of the show, discussing the rise and fall of the East, as well as prior material and upcoming material, and sharing a bit of knowledge about China, its relation to the world, and why it may be on a trajectory of an up and a potential down.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much, Armin. I enjoyed our discussion.
1: The Armin show is a culmination of so many of my discussions with thoughtful individuals, knowledgeable individuals, creative individuals, people who have something to say in a category that they have put effort into maybe for years, maybe for decades, a lot of experience comes through. I like finding the links between people and topics of discussion in the categories that you have come to recognize. We're glad to continue the show, to branch out, to expand, to have more links between individuals, to have bigger groupings of individuals together in different formats so that the show becomes more of a show. And as we continue to do this, we're always glad for your support along the way. The Army Show is something that has developed from all my past efforts, blogging, making videos, audios, and has reached to this point where there are now hundreds of episodes with people or just with myself, bringing knowledge, sometimes entertainment information, something that can help us progress forward in the categories that I tend to cover. Hope you enjoy it, and onward we go.
0: Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please comment any takeaways you had, and we'll see you on The Armin Show next time.